Something I neglected to mention is that Lee will be in New York City this weekend doing the Blitz with the Gideons, and they're going to hand out Bibles pretty much from dawn till probably past when the sun goes down. And so you be in prayer for Lee. You fly out on Saturday, and uh, he's going to go do that for the weekend. And uh, Sue and Brad and I met on Monday, and uh, Sue, has it been about two years since you've been saved? Two and a half years since you've been saved. Brad's been saved under a year. And what a beautiful thing. Amen? Amen. I mean, for God's grace shown among us, um, saving people and then sending people. And that's that's biblical. And so, um, love you guys. Love being a part of this church. Seriously. We've got some more great things. I don't want to preach Sunday's sermons. We'll, we'll get to this. Come on Sunday. It'll be good. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 is our start our verse for our second part of our talk on Jehovah's Witnesses. And the Bible says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Somebody want to finish that for me? The man Christ Jesus. Now just a little note here. Um, the word Christ is not actually a translated word. If you were to open up the Greek Bible, you could probably read it. Say, that looks like Christos. It's a word that in the Greek, if you were speaking Greek, you would say Christos for Christ. But why do we have Christ? I mean, all, all it is is just English letters given to the Greek letters. Well, what does Christ actually mean? This is cool. Every time you see Christ or you hear Jesus Christ mentioned in a proper way, Christ literally means the Messiah, the Anointed One. It, mean, he, it means that there's no one like Him, like the praise song. It means that He and He alone is the Son of God. Only He is the Savior. So whenever you see Christ, think of Messiah, Anointed One, the only one, there's no Christ Part B, Jesus and Jesus alone. Beautiful, beautiful picture. We could go on and on about that, but that's an interesting thought. It's not actually a translated word. It's a transliterated word. But um, here is our driving thought, same as last time, is that grace is not an opportunity to earn salvation, um, but it's an opportunity to receive salvation. So last time we covered the importance of defining the terms. Because if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness and you say, I believe in the grace of God, they'll say, as do I. But their version of grace is that it's your opportunity to sign up to start climbing the ladder to God. And grace, as we understand it, as the Bible teaches, is God extending his hand down, offering us Jesus. And so we're going to talk tonight about the Jehovah's Witnesses and their authority. We're going to talk about the New World Translation, which is their Bible. And then we're going to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses in hell. And then also the Watchtower Society. Is it actually God's mouthpiece? Did Jesus come back in 1914? And if you're still wondering that, you may want to wake up. All right, here we go. Um, question, is their Bible, the New World Translation, an accurate translation? Here's a couple of key figures. This is Nathan Knorr and F.W. Franz. And these guys were in charge of the seven-person translation committee that put together the New World Translation. 
And uh, this was a trial in Scotland to where he was brought to trial and had to testify under oath because there were so many shady things that were happening. And here's what he testified under oath. That he and Nor, the, the other uh, leader, had the final word in translation. So in other words, it didn't matter what the other five scholars, quote unquote, said that the Bible said. Because they were in charge, they got the final word in translation, as opposed to a true scholarly project to whoever who has the best ideas, right, and the best research. Their ideas went out. Not only that, but he was the head of the Watchtower's publicity department. We know in World War II, Nazi Germany, Joseph Goebbels was the minister of propaganda. That's one thing about the Germans. They don't really mince words. It's propaganda from the Nazi party, from the government. Same type of thing. If you're the head of the Watchtower's publicity department, you're the one who is, in a sense, the creator of advertisements. Okay? Not only that, but the translations and interpretations came from God. This is what he said. Invisibly communicated by, quote, angels of various ranks who controlled the translators. Now let's stop right here. What does that remind you of? Okay. To where, to where the, the authority and the meaning comes from, quote unquote, angels of various ranks. What's that? Bingo. Joseph Smith. Who else in history had a, quote unquote, angelic connection? Muhammad. Yeah. Go way off in the wilderness. An angel told me this. But we know the Bible says that if an angel preaches any other gospel, right? Let him be what? Accursed. Which is a really, really, really uh, strong, strong word. So number one, he's in charge. And then he says, angels told us to say that. So here's the question. Is there a possible conflict of interest? If you're on the translation committee for your organization, a question that I would have is, what is your level of training in the biblical languages? Well, uh, Franz actually had two years of biblical Greek. Now, if you go to a regular seminary, you'll have four semesters of biblical Greek. All right? But he's in charge of the translation. This is like letting an undergraduate student who's recently graduated with a degree, a bachelor's degree in astrophysics, be in charge of NASA. Not a good idea. Okay? Even if, like I had... Um, Two years of Greek in my seminary training, but I'm still a novice. I can, certain parts of the Greek Bible, I can read it, but there's no way that I would ever be on a part of a translation committee to take these original documents and know exactly how to translate those. It's just, it's just a, it's just an idea that's crazy. Uh, not only that, but he was in charge of the leadership of his cult or religious organization. Um, he was in charge of the publicity department, so this to me, brings up a perfect recipe for a conflict of interest. Don't you think? Uh, the business world calls this insider trading. Let's look at it from this direction. If you're translating the Bible, your goal is to translate accurately what the text actually says. Okay, That's just common sense. That's what you want to do. But if you're in charge of a religious organization that says only we know how to translate the Bible accurately, 
then you kind of have a conflict of interest because what if you come across a difficult Bible verse? I mean, just imagine if you came across a Bible verse that actually taught that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that would be a conflict of interest, wouldn't it? Because if if you come across that, you almost have a vested interest to incorrectly translate the verse as opposed to somebody who's on just a translation committee saying we want to translate the Bible into this language or get a better translation in English, you want to give the best translation possible, not one that's going to support the organization that pays your bills. So the New World Translation. Uh, We're going to look at a few statements by recognized Greek scholars. Um, One would be Dr. Julius Manti. He is the author of Hellenistic, the Hellenistic Greek Reader. I know all of y'all read that for your quiet time, um, and you love that, and you're so excited that we're going to talk about Julius Manti, the author of the Hellenistic Greek Reader. Here's what he said, quote, I have never read any New Testament so badly translated as the New World Translation. In fact, it is not their translation at all. Rather, it is a distortion of the New Testament. That's strong. The translators used what J.B. Rotherham had translated in 1893 in modern speech. It was kind of like the 1800s version of the Living Bible. All right, just, you know, a a paraphrase, so to speak. Uh, In modern speech, and changed the readings in scores of passages to state what Jehovah's Witnesses believe and teach. This is, that is distortion, not translation. And Bruce Metzger, this may be something to write down on your notes. Bruce, Bruce Metzger um, is basically the king of New Testament Greek. Uh, this guy, he's not living today, he's with the Lord, was professor of New Testament languages at Princeton Theological Seminary, wrote tons of awesome commentaries, very accessible, very scholarly. And when Bruce Metzger speaks, it's, I mean, it's very, very, very authoritative on the subject. But here's what he said. Quote, the Jehovah's Witnesses have incorporated in their translations of the New Testament several quite erroneous renderings of the Greek. That's a professor's way of saying that you're not doing it right. Okay, very proper professor. Uh, Dr. Robert Countess wrote his PhD dissertation on the New World Translation and how it interacts with the Greek. And here's what he says. Quote, the New, the New World Translation has been sharply unsuccessful and keeping doctrinal considerations from influencing the actual translation. It must be viewed as a radically biased piece of work. At some points, it is actually dishonest. At others, it is neither modern nor scholarly. And interwoven throughout its fabric is inconsistent application of its own principles enunciated in the foreword and appendix. And this idea will be opened up more but the concept of brainwashing. As we'll see, the Jehovah's Witnesses are very good at doing a bad thing, and that is textbook brainwashing, to where they will deceive people, and then when the prophecy, quote-unquote, doesn't come true, they tell the people the reason why you thought it wasn't going to come true is because your idea was wrong. Well, you're the one who gave me the idea. And so it's the classic case of causing the victim, okay, to think that they're responsible for their own abuse. Kind of like some of these people that have been, um, I guess you could call it, under arrest. Like people who have been inside a house and they've been held captive there against their will. Depending on how psychotic 
the bad guy is, he can cause the people to think that it's actually their fault and they stay out of fear of what would happen if they actually tried to run away. Very dangerous. Another scholar from Britain named H.H. Rowley said, quote, From beginning to end, this volume, speaking of the New World Translation, is a shining example of how the Bible should not be translated. The New World Translation is an insult to the Word of God. So in other words, if you want to get an example of how you do it wrong, look no further than the NWT. So the deity of Christ is really where it comes down to to it for us uh, as believers. And one example here, uh, how they mistranslate the text, is in Titus chapter 2, verse 15. That should be there uh, on your notes. The New World Translation reads, While we wait for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of the Savior of us, Christ Jesus. The English Standard Version, along with regular versions that are not corrupted, uh, translates the verse as follows. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice when they inserted the word here into the text, it was to take away from Jesus being the Son of God or Jesus being deity. Another example here would be in Colossians 1.17. This is huge. Their version says, Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him, all other things were made to exist. A regular translation, the English Standard Version in this case, says, And he is before what? All things, and in him, all things hold together. Now, what's the significance? Why, Why would it be significant for them to insert into their translation, the word other. Exactly. Because they believed that Jesus Christ was the first thing God created. Well, if that's true, then that means that Jesus is not eternal. Right? It means that Jesus had a a point in beginning. And really, there's not that much difference between Jesus and us. Really. Because we're creations. And technically, Jesus was a creation at some point, was created. So they teach about the deity of Christ, that Jesus was God's first creation. And this right here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, is a good example of twisting the text of the Bible to fit what people already want to believe. Now, do you think most people would catch this? No. I mean, it's talking about Jesus, right? You know, made to exist, but that's what words are important. That's something as we as Christians need to need to be very, very adamant about that words are important. <clears throat> Another example, Colossians chapter two, verse nine. Their translation says, Because it is in him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells bodily. The English Standard Version, Colossians two nine, says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Why would that be a problem, their translation? If you read that, what conclusions would you come to about Jesus? Great, great point. Right, right. Yeah, like like there is this source, you know, Jehovah, and Jehovah is God, That's, you know, they, they teach that. But Jesus is kind of like him because he's got, you know, the fullness of the divine quality. 
But the book of Colossians, Paul, it's kind of like Paul has this high caliber rifle with this big target barrel on there that can't, I know if you're not a gun person, you're lost. He's just driving tacks, all right? Like a thousand yards, he's just bang, bang, hitting the same hole in the target. And that, that center of the bullseye is that Jesus is deity. Only Jesus is Savior Only Jesus is Lord. Only through Jesus can we get to the Father. Boom, 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 boom. Well, Paul writes, and the Bible says, that the fullness of deity in Jesus, it dwells within him, which means that there's no lack in Jesus. That Jesus is not 99.99999% God. But the Jehovah's Witnesses, in order to make the Bible say what they want to believe, they cut that. And they dilute it, and they say, the fullness of the divine quality. Well, here's the question, what is the divine quality? Who knows? That's just an open-ended way to to divide the text. Another example would be John 1.1. Many Christians are familiar with this. Um, Any normal version of the Bible will say something like this, and the English Standard Version is what we're going to use here. Quote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was. Was God. The New World Translation says, quote, in... And notice once again, when they put the brackets around the word the, they're, they're in a sense de-emphasizing it in value. Saying, we're just putting this in here so it makes sense in English. Um, Pull it up on Google. You don't have to know Greek to point out the definite articles in Greek, like the, like the Jerry Clark, the Jeff Robinson, the piano, whatever it is. And it's all, I mean, it's loaded, John 1 1, with definite articles. But here's what they translate it In the beginning, so what if they took out that the in brackets? What would it read? In beginning, or in a beginning, the word was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This, to me, uh, I encountered this when I was in college, and we were doing some witnessing on the beach, just going along the beach and handing out tracts to people. And if they wanted to talk about it, we would talk about it. There was a Jehovah's Witness guy, a very friendly guy, but he told me, he says, you do know that in John 1, 1, that the Greek says... In the beginning, the word was with God, and the word was a God. You know that there's no definite article in the Greek. And I said, really? I said, I've not actually studied that. And I was taking Greek classes at the time. I didn't have my Greek Bible. I mean, that'd be kind of weird if you walked around with Greek. I don't know, just pull it out from the bag. <laughs> Concealed carry. But, uh, but I said, I'll have to go check that out. I said, I mean, do you study Greek? He said, no, we've learned, we've learned, right, at the Kingdom Hall, that they've taught us that there is no definite article in Greek. Well, he was taking someone else's word for it. And my question for the teachers of the Kingdom Hall is, how well do you know Greek? Now, we're not trying to get into a battle of we know more than them, right? Or saying, you know, this guy has education and this this person doesn't. It's not that at all. But when someone takes someone else's word for something that they've probably not studied, that's very, very, very dangerous, well, I went back to my dorm room, I opened up my Greek Bible, and here's what we have. In Greek, Kai is an, theos, theology, that's cool, right? Theology, God, and God uh, was the Word. In Greek, they don't have the same structure as we do, so the way you'd read it in English is and, um, 
the word. This is uh, nominative for the subject. And the word was God. The word was God. It's just simply false when they say that it doesn't have the definite article. Any questions there? I really don't know how to explain that other than it's just misrepresented. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I probably missed that day in Greek class. That's when I went surfing in college. No, I shouldn't. But, but I, I, that, that'd be something good to look up. And, and anything like that, you know, that you can find from reputable Greek sources or, you know, good theology books, use it. You know, put it in that, in that quiver. Here's the big one. Jehovah's Witnesses and hell. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 46. I was going to bring in this huge Greek lexicon, and I, I said, you know what, there's probably already so much encouragement with the Greek that we're already looking at that would overload you guys, but uh, this to me is, other than John 1.1, the most dishonest translation um, in the New World translation. Here's their version. This is Jesus speaking um, after the parable in Matthew 25, sheep and goat, sheep and goat, and goes out. 25.46, quote, and these will depart into everlasting cutting off and the righteous ones into everlasting life. The English Standard Version reads, and these will go away into ever or eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Well, the question is, what is the word? Why the mistranslation? Well, we know that Jehovah's Witnesses deny eternal punishment because they teach that if you're a bad person, whatever that is, Okay, and that's the danger of cults. How do you know you're a good person? Well, you do good. How much? Like, when is enough enough? You never know. But if you're not that, and you're a bad person, then once you die, you just cease to exist. You just kind of soul sleep, as some people would call it. Um, but the word here in, uh, and this is the standard Greek lexicon, all right? And if you notice, all of these guys who are the editors are Germans, okay? Whenever you get the, get the Germans in charge, it's going to be accurate and it's going to be clear. So this is not Baptist stuff, okay? It literally means um, the, the word for punishment here, infliction of pain, Suffering or pain and chastisement, punishment, transcendent retribution, transcendent meaning from God. And when you put that, the word is kolasin in the Greek. When you put that together with the word for eternity or everlasting in the Greek, that's where we get everlasting or eternal punishment. But because they don't want to believe in hell, they substitute the word, quote, cutting off. And there's nothing in here that has anything to do with cutting off. It has to do with punishment. That's as clear as we can. That's straight from the lexicon horse's mouth. Another example. Um, I ran into this when I was living in South Carolina. We had two ladies come by the house. And uh, they once they found out that I was an uh, evangelical Christian, they said, well, you knew, do you know that the Bible teaches that there is no such thing as a conscious hell? And I said, really? And they, they had it marked, you know, went over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. And here's what the text says. <clears throat> For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Whenever somebody gives you a verse, always ask, what's the context? Anybody want to tell us what, what, the, what kind of is the driving thought in the book of Ecclesiastes? What's the big idea? Vanity. Vanity, exactly. 
Vanity of vanities, emptiness, and under what scope? Under the sun. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is like a sermon. It's, you ever heard the term venting? People had a rough day. They say, I'm sorry, I just had to vent. You know, and it's like three hours later and you're just like, somebody give me a call on the phone so I can leave. It's Solomon's vent. It's his perspective on life under the sun. In other words, separate from God. If God does not exist, it's all empty. It's all vanity. There's no point in life. It's hollow. No meaning. Well, the context of Ecclesiastes is the hopelessness of life without God. But if you read the next verse, that's once, once again with Jehovah's Witnesses and cults who base their teachings on the Bible, or they say that their teachings are the best interpretation of the Bible, just read a couple of verses uh, ahead or behind, and it will lead you to a good uh, conclusion. Verse 6 in chapter 9, Ecclesiastes says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So in context, is Solomon addressing whether hell exists? Is he addressing whether heaven exists? No. He's addressing that the dead don't have any more to do with the pointless thing called life. And so just just take him to the next verse. We'll get to that. That's good. That's good. It is very troublesome, you know, when you bring up the Bible, if you are trying to, to, to twist the Bible. Um, biblical words for hell, Sheol in Hebrew, uh, literally means the abode or the realm of the dead. Uh, in the New Testament, we find Hades, which if you've seen any of the movies that have come out about the Greek uh, demigods and so forth, you've got Hades, and Hades is a bad guy. Uh, it's the abode of the dead, but there is a separation in Hades um, from the, of the wicked and the righteous. But here's the heavy-duty word that we see in the New Testament that Jesus uses, and it's Gehenna. It means outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and anguish because of the fire in Luke chapter 16. This is the word that Jesus uses for the rich man in hell. It's conscious. It's where real people go. Uh, it also has to do with the lake of fire, or the second death in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. And it speaks of the beast and the false prophet, end time stuff. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 8 says that the lake of fire is the second death. And uh, here's a few scriptures that we won't go through. Uh, the reason why I list these is because they're in Matthew and Mark. And they're straight from the lips of Jesus. And it deals time after time about being cast alive into a place called hell. And if hell is simply just a metaphor for the grave, that's like saying I'm going to cast you alive into sleep. Which doesn't make any sense. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10 and 11. I've actually used this with a Jehovah's Witness uh, gentleman who came by. Uh, we were living in Florida, and he, he had no answer other than to say, well, let me show you these other scriptures. And here's what it says. He will also drink the wine of, the, of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Here's, this is so sad. And they have no rest day or night, those worshipers, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That is conscious 
eternal suffering. That is not annihilation and it's not soul sleep. Luke 3.17, this is John the Baptist. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Speaking of the eternality of hell. So it's fairly easy to see that the Bible teaches that hell is not just a metaphor for the grave. Okay? And our final issue that we'll address is this. Jehovah's Witnesses failed prophecies. Here's a question that you should ask Jehovah's Witnesses when you dialogue with them. How can, how can the Watchtower Society um, speak for God when that society has been so wrong in its prophecies? And we'll look at a few of what those are. This is from their creation magazine. This is from the 1800s. And it says, quote, The second coming of the Lord began in 1874. They also published, quote, The scriptural proof is that the second presence of the Lord Jesus began in 1874, which means the return of Jesus. And we need to ask the question, if a prophet is truly a prophet of God, do they get to change their mind? Like if I tell you guys that Jesus is coming back at 8 o'clock when we're finished, on the money, I mean not just Eastern Standard Time 8 o'clock, like nuclear Eastern Standard 8 o'clock, and then it passes to one second after that, I've given a false prophecy, okay? And then if I later said, well, actually, what? No, 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 you guys heard it wrong. What I meant is, and then set another date, I'm opening myself up not only to be a false prophet, but to be a brainwasher, as we'll see uh, in just a few minutes. But Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, in 1888 said, quote, and this is the biggie, within the coming 26 years, all present governments will be overthrown and dissolved. The full establishment of the kingdom of God will be accomplished by the end of A.D. 1914 in his book, Studies in the Scriptures. Okay, did Jesus come back in 1914? Jehovah's Witnesses will even tell you, no, he didn't come back in 1914. Would you say that that would make Mr. Russell a false prophet? I would say biblically we have to say yes, because it's a false prophecy in the name of God who is, by definition, truth. Also, uh, there's been prophecies about the return of Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob and the prophets. Now, I'm not exactly sure what they're supposed to do uh, when they come back. Uh, scripture doesn't really teach this per se. But uh, in the 1917 issue of the Watchtower, it reads, quote, There will be no slip-up. Abraham should enter upon the actual possession of his promised inheritance in the year eight, 1925 A.D. Because there was a slip-up. Good point. Yes. Uh, in 1923 issue of the Watchtower, it says, quote, 1925 is definitely settled by the Scriptures. In 1924, the Watchtower reads, quote, The year 1925 is a date definitely and clearly marked in the Scriptures, even more clearly than that of 1914. And we would say, not being a jerk, but I hope so, since the first one uh, didn't happen. Um, the date changes and obviously that didn't happen, and then the publications point to 1975. Um, in 1975, to bring the end of time, and the 1976 issue, after everything didn't 
come to completion in 1975, said, quote, It is not advisable for us to set our sights on a certain date. Isn't that what Jesus told us? Okay. Um, it was not the word of God that failed or deceived him and brought disappointment. And here's the brainwashing. But that his own understanding was based on wrong premises. So according to this, whose fault is it? You guys obviously didn't understand that correctly. Because don't you know that Jesus says don't set dates? Now this is, logically speaking, this is a train wreck. It's a train wreck. But there are many people, I think that they're they're family people, they want their family not to be a train wreck like they see in so many situations, and they go to the kingdom hall and they believe what they're told. And this should cause us not to sit back and be like, that's so, that's so ridiculous. Oh, what a joke. I mean, anybody would be able to recognize that, right? I mean, you know, the setting dates and stuff. Don't you know what Jesus said? But the New Testament says the reason why people don't turn to Christ is because they're blinded. If we had a blind man or woman come into this room and they tripped over where Danny is because they couldn't see that the chairs start there, nobody in here would, would say, what are you doing, blind guy? Watch where you're going. I mean, that would be totally unreasonable. Super jerk status. It's, they're, they're blind. So we should let this break our hearts and not rise up and say, oh, look what we know. Does that make sense? I think as, as Christians have been set free by Christ, we see this stuff and we're like, how could anybody? Well, the question is, it's not how could that, but how could I go on with not being burdened for these people? That's, that's the question for me um, and for us. Jehovah's Witnesses were told 1975 and then chastised for basing their beliefs on the wrong premises. This is a textbook example of brainwashing, blaming the victim for the victim's state when the victim didn't put themselves in that state. They were deceived and they were intellectually strong-armed. Just a few tips on how to speak with Jehovah's Witnesses. Number one, be loving. Remember that they're people, okay? Especially for the fireballs among us. You just have passion and zeal. This is not a person to defeat in an intellectual jousting match or a theological jiu-jitsu match. This is a person to be loved. Uh, number two, be patient. Don't have a chip on your shoulder. Some of the stuff that we've covered with Jehovah's Witnesses, for some of us, seems silly, doesn't it? Like, how could you ever get that from, from, from the book? Well, once, once again, let's remember what we were before Christ found us and that He showed us His grace So to remove any amount of chip-on-the-shoulder theology, because there's one thing that everybody loves, it's the other person telling you they're wrong when they're also communicating without saying it, I think you're stupid. We all love that, right? So let's, let's just avoid that at all costs. Number three, be engaging. Ask questions. Ask probing questions. And it doesn't have to be the, the smart aleck question, but just ask them the question. Once again, uh, what's the context of that verse? What does it say uh, before or after? Really, l- let me see that. I'd love to and just, just engage with them and dialogue uh, with them. Number four, be intentional. Ask if you can share your faith also. My dad actually does a great job with this. When people come by, he says, well, I'll give you ten minutes, and then if you can let me have my ten minutes. That's a good idea. Because sometimes if you don't give parameters, it can what? You just got home from work, and then you're having, like, i got to be at work at 30 minutes, you know, and it's the next morning, so let's put some parameters and do it in such a way 
I'm a person sharing, you're a person sharing, even though we understand that we have the truth of Christ. Number five, be specific. With every single false religion, Islam, Hinduism, whether it's a cult, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, next month we're going to study the New Age and a lot of that type of stuff. Use the law. The law, the Ten Commandments that shows people that they're not good people. That if they're trying to get to God, then God says, here's who I am. He gave the Ten Commandments. Why does he say, do not bear false witness, do not lie? Because he's truth. Have you ever lied? Have you ever, have you ever stolen anything, even if it's small? Have you ever looked in lust? And just go through that to where it goes to the conscience and it circumnavigates the intellect, which can put up smoke screens all day long. So just, just learn the law, use the Ten Commandments, use your testimony in that, and let your heart break for these people. Any questions? I'm not a scholar on the Bible, so when they come to my door, I'm loving, but I don't have the patience to talk to them because I don't know, I cannot tell them what I know. I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, but so I don't talk to them. Tell them I talk to my pastor. Mm-hmm. That, my, my mom's approach is, you know, she doesn't usually engage um, with them or, or talk with them. And I would think just leave that up to your conscience as the Lord would leave you, lead you. But I think it would be a good idea. We have some tracks, some gospel tracks to just pick up some of those. We actually bought a bunch that are themed for Halloween. So you can redeem that because you're never going to have another night unless you live way out in the country. And when people show up, they're really lost um, to have all these people come. That way you can give them a gospel track. They come, they're coming to your house so you can give them a gospel track. But it may be, you say, well, I appreciate that. Then when they give you the material, you can throw that in the trash. Um, and, and we're not, you know, because that's, that's where it belongs. And then you can give them some of yours. Just, just an idea. Obviously, we won't, we won't say, well, thanks, I was going to have a fire tonight anyway. Don't want to you know, do that. But, but you know, it would be a good way to exchange and just put the gospel in there. Yeah. You talked about cults, Jim, and they are so zealous. I mean, they'll go to door to door, and us as evangelical evangel- Christians will not yeah. and share the truth. And they are brainwashed, but you can see... I think you hit it on the head, Mark. I think we had seven people that reach out last time. How many do we have on Sunday morning? I don't want to know compared to that. But that's, for the most part, that's what churches have issues with. That's a, y'all brought up a great point, and I guess we'll... We'll try to close it on this. If you really thought that gaining heaven was dependent solely on you doing all of these good things, the convicting question is how many of us would be out there busting our rear ends to go door to door? But which should be the greater motivation? What's that? I'm sorry? Gratitude. That's right. Right. Yeah. And and is Jesus not good enough? Is he not powerful enough for us to do things like, you know, even 
do it door to door. Reach out. Talk to people at, at work. I mean, share the gospel. Is, is, Jesus, is Jesus somehow insufficient so that if we actually believed, if I don't do this, then I don't go to heaven? To me, that's a convicting question, that I would be more motivated by fear of not getting something than out of gratitude to the one who died for me and the one who loved me. And I appreciate you bringing that up, Mark, and that's something I think we, we all just need to let sit and soak and just move into action. Next week, we're going to cover uh, the existence of God and um, suffering and that issue. We're going to look at some scientific evidence, kind of deviate for a week or so, and then come back and hit the cults uh, some more. But I think to kind of go along with what you guys are doing in Romania and all the importance of mission work, um, we found out the last time we were in Costa Rica that there was a huge influx of Jehovah's Witnesses coming to, and Mormons, coming to witness the people. And um, they were talking about how they even would just kind of prey on the mission. Like they mm. really went after Pure Vida. And, um, and it's almost like the folks there would challenge them with, with the truth. Mm. And they would, their answer was to go back and get kind of their, their head person that would bring them. So they didn't always have the answers, but they went to, I guess, their leaders to. Hmm. try to get them. I mean, it's huge. That's one of the things Marjorie said. There's such a need for what we're doing. And it's not Mm -hmm. just there, but it's all over. This is international. Yeah. Our translator in Brazil, one of them, he was actually a Mormon. How they got around the white people or the good ones and the darker people or not, I'm not actually sure how they break that down in Brazil. But uh, he came to faith in Christ. So the thing is, is whether it's Romania, Costa Rica, here, it just, I know we're over time, but it always bugs me when people say, we got plenty to do here. Well, go do it and leave the ones who are going to go do it there and there and here and there alone. We're crying out loud. And most of the churches that take that perspective, they don't do it here well at all. And I find that when we do it over there and over there and over there and back there and over that rock and we do it here, it all works together. Because God gives us a heart for people that are not like us and people that are. So good job on the Costa Rica word. Let's pray.